So a week ago, we were in this place uh, doing a very similar thing to this, except it was an extra special Sunday. It was Easter Sunday, and we began this glorious season of Easter, because once again, Easter is a season, not just one day, and we celebrated the glorious resurrection of Christ. Now, there's a funny thing about Easter. And that is that it's typically the highest attendance Sunday of the year for any church community. Uh, we certainly had a few more last week than we have this week. And yes, it is also our holiest day, but it is also centered around one of the most unbelievable and maybe ridiculous claims of our faith. Have you ever thought about that? Easter is, surround, is all about this claim that Jesus was dead and then he wasn't. And that is what brings out more folks than anything else. Jesus was dead and then he wasn't. This ridiculous claim that we make, this ridiculous claim that we believe as people of faith, is what brings out more people than anything. Okay, I'm not complaining because anytime anybody comes to church, I'm always very excited. But this is really such a peculiar and specific claim that we make. I mean, if you're a fan of the show The Walking Dead, that is already pretty far outside the, rea the realm of realism. The idea that there are people who die and then come back to life is pretty out there. I mean, it's in the science fiction genre, right? We, we don't think of this as something we're watching to actually learn how the real world works. And yet, our faith makes an even more incredible claim about Jesus, because Jesus was not just a zombie risen from the dead. Jesus actually died and came out the other side of death alive again. He did what no one else can do. Jesus was alive. He was skin and bone and breath, and he was alive. Fully alive. Not like a zombie, but like for real, alive again. I mean, that's a pretty outrageous claim on its face, because we all know how life and death work, at least in general. I mean, at some point, life, your life, begins. And then we walk the journey of our life, and at some point, our life comes to an end. We die. And short of medical resuscitation, you know, this side of eternity, that's kind of the end. There's nothing else. There isn't coming back from the dead. Not really. And here we make this outrageous claim that Jesus, after being dead for two days, on the third day he walks out of the tomb and he's alive again. So alive that you can reach out and touch the wounds in his hands and his side. Jesus is alive again. This outrageous claim. That 
is what Easter is all about, this unbelievable occurrence. I don't know if you've ever tried to explain the resurrection to somebody who didn't believe or wasn't a Christian or maybe hadn't grown up in the Christian faith and maybe that was a little bit of an absurd thing to think about or if you've ever met somebody who really was committed to Christianity not being true and they're like, really? You believe he was dead and then not again? Well, I can understand why people might have doubts about that. It's an unbelievable claim. Especially if you've never experienced the risen Christ, you've never had that resurrection moment of your own, it is pretty unbelievable to believe that this guy who lived something 2,000 years ago was, you know, he, because we say he was the Son of God, clearly he must have been. I mean, our faith believes he was, but again, that's another one of those claims that our faith makes, and that's a hard thing to prove. I mean, we can prove that there was a guy named Jesus who lived and died around the time that the Bible talks about and had a very similar story to what the Bible tells about. That's pretty historical fact. But can we prove that he was the Son of God and that he's living and he's not dead, that he's risen from the grave? Well, that's a little more unbelievable. But if we look back, all the way back to the very beginning of this story, this resurrection story, we find even one of Jesus' disciples having doubt. Thomas, from our scripture this evening, was not present when Jesus appeared to them. And he, when he comes in, is told, Jesus is risen, Christ is risen. And they're excited to tell Thomas all about this. And how does Thomas respond? Mm-hmm. Right. You mean the crucifixion we saw the other day didn't happen. They didn't arrest him and drag him through the streets and beat him and hang him on a cross. Right. Because, you know, people come back from the dead. I can almost hear Thomas in the room going, Really? Really? This isn't funny, guys. Why are you pulling my leg? And I feel like some of his reaction, I'm almost certain, would have been because he wanted to believe. I mean, who wouldn't want to believe that Jesus, who had died, was risen? He wanted to believe that Jesus had been resurrected. He wanted to believe that Jesus was not gone. He wanted to believe that all they had done over the last three years was not over. And I have no doubt that he wanted to believe, and yet, believing in this unbelievable thing is sometimes really hard, even for the best of us. And so Thomas says, well, I need to touch the wounds in his hands and his feet and his side before I'll believe. Thomas needed something more than the words. He needed the experience of the risen Christ to touch the wounds, to know for himself that Jesus was in fact alive. Now, Jesus responds to that by saying, blessed are those who believe without seeing. But I don't hear Jesus rebuking Thomas for having doubts. 
Jesus seems to equally understand the need of Thomas to touch the wounds and invites Thomas to do so. Jesus understood that Thomas needed to see for himself that evil and death and destruction and violence had not won. That the goodness and grace and love of God is in fact greater than these terrible things of the world. But maybe there was something even deeper than just doubting the truth of the words declaring the resurrection. Maybe he was seeing the woundedness of the world. Maybe he needed to see the woundedness of the world around him resolved to truly believe. Holy Week was a traumatic event for the, in the life of the disciples. Anyone who followed Jesus, anyone who knew Jesus, this would be a traumatic thing to see him hung up on a cross and left to die, and then having died, laid in a tomb. We all would grieve someone who we so much loved being lost. And so this was a traumatic event and maybe what Thomas needed more than anything was to see that that which had happened was defeated. He needed more than words. He needed to see resurrection life in the flesh, in action. And that's why he was asking to touch the wounds of Jesus. It wasn't that he doubted Jesus. It's that he couldn't believe the words that Jesus was risen. He needed something more. I think the, the same is true for us. Think about the last time that you had doubts. Doubts about something that God was either actively working in a given situation or maybe you felt like God wasn't. Think about that last time that you had real doubts. Maybe even a time where you asked God, are you even there? Sometimes as much as we proclaim with our lips, Christ is risen, and that all things are made new by the power of the Holy Spirit, it can be a real struggle to truly believe that in our hearts. I mean, I believe every single day with my head that God is at the work in the world, nudging us forward, encouraging us to be a people who change the world by loving one another, as Christ first loved us. I believe that in my head, but there are certainly days when I look out at the world and proclaim what's almost cliche, how long, oh God, how long? Because I just don't see it. I believe God is doing the work of transformation, but I don't see it. And that makes me doubt, that makes me struggle to believe. Sometimes I need to see the wounds of the world made new so I can believe. We, like Thomas, need to see the resurrection life in the wounds sometimes because in the wounds of Christ, we see our own wounds, our own brokenness, our own needs for resurrection. 
Sometimes we want to believe, but we just can't because we need something more than words of hope. As much as we want to, we need something concrete, something tangible, something real in front of us to believe that God's claims really can happen. Sometimes we struggle with doubt. If you've ever struggled with doubt, that means you're in the company of Thomas, one of the disciples, one of the apostles. And I guarantee you, a long line of Christians that have followed since then over the last 2,000 some odd years. I'm also reminded this week of the church, and specifically the United Methodist Church. This coming week is going to be a big week, likely, in the history of my denomination, our denomination. No matter what comes by the end of the week, this is going to be one of those weeks we talk about in the history books. This week, the Judicial Council, which again is the Supreme Court of the United Methodist Church, will be meeting in Newark, New Jersey. And they're going to sit and hear cases that are coming before them. Now, that may sound like a weird thing, but in a global denomination where we make all of our a policy uh, officially only once every four years, this isn't exactly like sending a question to Congress and being like, when you, wrote, when you, when you had this bill passed, what did you mean? This is... Kind of the, well, nobody else can speak, so we're going to empower a group of people to hear disagreement, to hear places where we need a little more clarity on a certain policy. Because the next time the, the general council, oh, bleh, I'm missing up my words here, next time the general conference meets is not going to be outside of a special called general conference that may be happening next year, it's not going to be happening until 2020. So any issues that come up, and issues come up all the time. Most of the time, it's uh, this, the work of this council is rather, well, boring. They're looking at rules and seeing what actually was passed. They're asking that question, what was the intent? And then they make a decision. Okay, so what this rule actually means is this just so we're all on the same page. Because when you're a global denomination of 14 million people with lots of people who are leaders and who all think they're right, sometimes you just need an arbitrator to bring the peace. This is a good thing. And I want to be clear that I believe the work of the Judicial Council is very important in the organization of the church. And that those who are sitting on that council are faithful Christians and United Methodists. And in the doing the work they are doing, they're doing their best to seek and serve God and the church to the best of their ability. And for that reason, that makes their work very important. Because they are doing the work of the church so that we can continue to carry out the work of the church. But there are two particular issues coming up this week that really have me 
concerns that have me having doubts. The first is whether Bishop Karen Olivito's election and consecration as a bishop of the United Methodist Church last summer was in fact in order and valid because Bishop Olivito is married to another woman. There are those challenging her election because they believe she is unfit to hold the office of bishop or even pastor, despite her years of faithful and dedicated service, and not to mention some of the most impeccable credentials slash best person you could ever meet. Side note, not in my sermon here, but she actually had a note from her doctor saying she had to hold back on hugging because she was hugging too much. <laughs> like, kid you not. This is Bishop Olivito, and there are people questioning whether she should be a bishop simply because her chosen spouse happens to be a woman. The other one is a little more personal to me in that it's a case asking whether boards of ordained ministry are, and I quote, required to ascertain whether a candidate meets the qualifications for candidacy and ordained ministry, including whether or not she or he is exhibiting fidelity in marriage and celibacy in singleness, or is a self-avowed practicing homosexual. Basically asking if persons like myself should be allowed to be pastors in our tradition, in part because some conferences have taken the policy of not asking about sexual orientation and instead focusing on the gifts, abilities, and God's calling in determining who is fit to be clergy. Theoretically, this decision could decide whether I ever get to wear a stole or not, which is a really weird thing to think about. I'm going to try not to be too personal up here, but that gives me doubts because I'm standing here in front of you and I'm, I'm preaching like I'm actually doing this work of pastor in front of you right now. Clearly, I am able to do the job, <laughs> at least to some ability. I'm not going to say I'm the best <laughs> pastor ever. I'm not going to say I get everything right, but I think as much as any pastor, I'm... I'm learning on the job and I'm always seeking to do better, but I'm doing this job and simply because I happen to be married to another man, I might not as well be able to be in this job forever. And that's really where I see my doubts because I want to believe in the church. If you know me, it's because the, what really causes me the most doubt is because I believe so much in the work of the Methodist Church. I am a cradle Methodist. I love with all of my heart the United Methodist Church. I once tried to leave the United Methodist Church and I lasted nine months and I was right back. Because I love the United Methodist Church and I believe that God is doing great things through this church. I mean, look, there's this whole campus here, in part because of the United Methodist Church. That was one I just thought of right off the top of my head. We're trying to end malaria, folks. Like, in a real, 
actual way ends in malaria. We are a great church who could continue to do so many other great things. And I have my doubts because I don't know that anything can stop what's going to happen this week from happening. Now, I don't know what's going to happen. I am actually optimistic about what's going to happen. But because I'm optimistic, I'm also pessimistic about what happens after that. I'm concerned the church is going to get ripped apart and that people are going to miss the movement of the Holy Spirit, that we're going to be lost in the minutiae of our own politics around church doctrine and teachings and understandings of Scripture, and we're going to be looking so much at those things, we're going to completely miss the movement of God. And I have my doubts about the ability of the church to actually be the church. I want to believe it up here. I believe the church can do great things, but right now in this place, in this time, I need to know that resurrection's real. And I need to see it in the church. And if I'm honest, right now I'm struggling to find that. I need to know that the wounds that have hurt me, that have hurt the church, will not overcome the resurrection of God. All of me knows this tr is true, but I need something more. This thing we call faith. It's not easy. It might be easy to look at someone like myself, who's a pastor, and be like, oh, clearly he's got lots of faith. Look, he wears a fancy robe that looks really weird to anywhere else in the world. And even inside the church sometimes, this looks weird. And he, he's the one who goes out and whenever we need someone to pray, there's a few others. Everybody can pray. Just remember that. He's the one who stands up here on Sundays and week after week has gone into the Bible, into commentaries, has studied and prayed and looked for what God has for us to say. Clearly, faith is going to be easy for him, but I'm standing here telling you today that faith is hard. And sometimes I struggle to find faith. But like I said before, that means we're in good company. Because Thomas... One of the disciples stood in front of the other disciples who had seen the risen Christ and said, I don't believe you. At least I can't believe you yet. I want to believe you, but I need to see the wounds for myself. And so when we say we struggle with faith, we stand in good company. And we also stand with Mary, like we talked about last week, who stood in front of the empty tomb and just assumed that they had taken our Lord away. With Jesus right behind her, waiting to say, Psst, Mary. <laughs> Faith is a struggle to believe in the unbelievable, to hope in the improbable, to trust that in spite of all of the evidence, there is still healing from wounds. And thankfully... Praise God, we serve a risen Christ who never shuns us for doubts. Who instead invites us to touch the wounds. To know for ourselves for certain that Jesus is risen. And then, 
invites us to know in the uh, breath of the Holy Spirit that we are not alone. Jesus, who calls us into community with one another and surrounds us with one another, so that in those moments when I'm having my doubts, I can look out and be like, well, I have my doubts today, but maybe someone else out there isn't. And so I'll hang out with them until I can not doubt anymore. I'll hold on until I can believe. Because regardless, the good news is that Jesus is risen. And God is love and grace and forgiveness. And that is for each and every one of us. Amen.